It's 1981, and model David Gerlitz is posing for Winston Cigarettes' latest ad campaign near the top of Mount Evans in Colorado. He's got that feathered 80s hair, but he looks tough, macho even, with a smoke dangling out the side of his mouth. A photo crew captures the rugged model while some executives watch on. And during this shoot, David is having a breathtaking experience. I certainly felt the effects of my smoking addiction not being able to breathe. David was the perfect spokesperson for these ads because he smoked three and a half packs of cigarettes a day. During breaks, the crew hooks him up to an oxygen machine. But David keeps taking his mask off to smoke. After a while, he notices that the suits aren't joining him on these smoke breaks. So he asks one of the executives, like, hey, what's the deal? He turned to me and said, we don't smoke the shit, we just sell it. And I laughed and he said, we reserve the right to smoke for the young, the poor, the black, and the stupid. stupid. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanin. On January 11th, 1964, 59 years ago this week, the U.S. Surgeon General released a bombshell report detailing the harmful effects of smoking. And with their backs against the wall, tobacco companies got creative. The industry crafted new tactics to target vulnerable communities, using strategies that were secretive yet effective. Eventually, though, one community caught on and fought back. So don't light up. We're taking a peek behind Big Tobacco's smokescreen after the break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. In the early 1960s, cigarettes were everywhere. More than 40% of American adults smoked. That's around 70 million people. Even cartoon characters like Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble enjoyed lighting up. Here they are in a TV commercial. Okay, how's about taking a nap? I, I got a better idea. Let's take a Winston break. That's it! Winston is the one filter cigarette that delivers flavor 20 times a pack. 
This heyday for cigarettes couldn't last forever. In 1962, President John F. Kennedy commissioned a report on smoking due to mounting pressure from health organizations. A year and a half later, on January 11, 1964, U.S. Surgeon General Luther Terry shared the findings in front of TV cameras. Out of its long and exhaustive deliberations, the committee has reached the overall judgment that cigarette smoking is a health hazard of sufficient importance to the United States to warrant remedial action. The Surgeon General connected smoking to several diseases, like lung cancer, emphysema, and coronary heart disease. I would advise anyone to discontinue smoking cigarettes. But if he were to continue smoking cigarettes, he should do so in appreciation of the health hazard. Would you advise children to start? I certainly would advise children not to start. This was a brutal blow to cigarette makers. They stood to lose billions in profits. Hours after the announcement, CBS News interviewed Howard Coleman, a director at cigarette maker Philip Morris. Coleman downplayed the Surgeon General's claims with a lit cigarette in his hand. I don't think the industry admits there are any bad elements. If there are bad elements, through our laboratories, through the Surgeon General, through the AMA, through acts of God and luck, we hope we may find them. And if they are found, they will be removed. But at this point, we do not know. Yeah, who's to say who ate the last donut, said the guy with powdered sugar all over his face. In front of cameras, Coleman seemed calm and collected. Privately, though, the Surgeon General's announcement left tobacco companies reeling. They worried that people would quit cigarettes in record numbers, and they were looking for ways to make up for those expected losses. In the middle of this panic... One cigarette brand showed some promise. Cool. That's cool with a K. Cool was well-positioned because their products had already been marketed as a healthier alternative to other cigarettes. Light a filter cool, and suddenly you're refreshed, like riding in air-conditioned comfort. Cool Snowfresh filter makes the menthol right. Filter cools taste clean and fresh and light. These cigarettes were flavored with menthol, a cooling chemical added to commercial tobacco products to give them a minty taste and make them feel less harsh. But in reality, there weren't any health benefits. Actually, the CDC now says using menthols can make it harder to quit smoking. These types of misconceptions could be why, while other cigarette brands were struggling, Cool actually saw a bump in one group of users. Black smokers. It wasn't much, just 5%, but it presented an opportunity. Here's Keith Waylu, a history professor at Princeton University who's written about the targeted marketing of menthols to the Black community. There is what one expert, Ernest Dichter, called the status-seeking market. And he pointed out that African Americans, in particular, were a fruitful outlet for status products because of the existence of racial segregation, the existence... Cool makers Brown and Williamson started targeting Black smokers with ads that sold them on aspirational lifestyles. The Brown and Williamson Company led the way by the summer of 1964 with robust and concerted advertising 
in black newspapers with fundamentally new motifs that were tailored to black smokers. One of the first cool ads in this new marketing campaign showed a sharply dressed black man and woman surrounded by trees, almost like they've stopped for a smoke break mid-hike. The ad reads, quote, feel extra coolness in your throat. These ads were very effective, and as a result, other menthol makers wanted to attract Black consumers too. But after the Surgeon General's report, things got harder for tobacco companies. Congress passed a law requiring warning labels on cigarette packs, and cigarette ads were banned entirely from TV and radio. In response, tobacco companies came up with a bunch of tactics specifically targeting Black smokers. They were sneaky about it, though. Secretive. Borderline deceptive. And when you hear it all laid out, it all starts to sound a bit conspiratorial. So let's talk about it. I'm going to mention a few different companies and menthol brands, but don't worry too much about the names. It's all about the strategies these companies used to market menthols to Black smokers. Let's start with one we'll call Community Inception. Remember when good old Leo DeCaps used dreams to plant ideas inside people's heads? That's sort of what cigarette companies did, planting preferences for menthols deep inside Black communities while keeping their own involvement hidden. In a 1967 memo, one ad exec working for R.J. Reynolds, the makers of Camels, outlined plans to push their menthols in St. Louis's Black communities. R.J. Reynolds would deliver samples of their camel menthol cigarettes to different groups of influencers in the Black community throughout the day. Morning hours for barbers, just before the evening rush for bartenders, right at the beginning of a shift for cab drivers. So what you do is you establish the notion that these are grassroots consumer preferences that are emerging out of the community itself. In addition to free packs of cigarettes, the people targeted would also be given what the memo refers to as boast material. So if your favorite bartender leaned in and said, You ever try a camel menthol? You'd think he was speaking from experience, not from a pamphlet provided by the company itself. Another strategy tobacco makers tried was courting the media. In the 1960s, Big Tobacco started paying off Black media outlets for favorable press. Advertisers tended to overlook many of the Black newspapers and magazines, so they welcomed ad dollars from cigarette makers. One glaring instance of the tobacco industry's influence was in 1965, when jazz legend Nat King Cole died at the age of 45 from lung cancer. Ebony Magazine did a cover story on the late crooner and his tragic early death. They tell you everything about his life, but they do not once say anything about his smoking. The piece never mentions that Cole reportedly smoked as many as three packs of cigarettes a day. In that same issue, Ebony published four different menthol cigarette ads. That tells you a lot about the way in which willing accomplices within the Black media structure assisted the building of this advertising plan. These types of partnerships were happening in other halls of power, too. Namely, 
Washington, D.C. The tobacco industry had been lining the pockets of politicians for years. But now, they positioned themselves as civil rights advocates, donating to prominent members of the Congressional Black Caucus. And when the group of lawmakers would get together at black tie fundraisers, attendees were given free samples of cigarettes. It wasn't explicitly a quid pro quo arrangement, but black politicians rarely spoke out against the tobacco industry. And just when it looked like the industry couldn't lose, one company overplayed its hand and got called out for it. There was no way that I could ignore this plan. So I said, if I have any integrity, personal or professional integrity, I have to do this. Big Tobacco meets its match after the break. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like UGG, Samsung, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. That's Rakuten. Welcome back, cool cats. Those are both spelled with Ks, by the way. Before the break, we heard about the strategies the tobacco industry used to target Black communities after a 1964 Surgeon General's report. Tobacco companies used these sneaky marketing strategies for nearly three decades without much pushback. And certain neighborhoods looked different because of it. Tobacco and alcohol were the two leading advertising campaigns in communities of color, period. That's Reverend Jesse Brown. In 1990, he was serving as the pastor of a church in North Philadelphia a neighborhood plastered with aspirational cigarette ads featuring smiling Black models. Many prominent Black figureheads weren't calling Big Tobacco out for this kind of highly targeted marketing. Reverend Brown says they weren't the ones seeing the real effects of smoking. In the end, they're not the ones that come down into neighborhoods and communities. They're not the ones going to the cancer wards. They're not the people who have to bury these folks and have funerals for these families. They're not the ones who have to help them deal with the losses. Reverend Brown did see the negative health effects cigarettes were having on his community. He was the president of a local organization, the Committee to Prevent Cancer Among Blacks. And it was an issue that extended far beyond Philly. Smoking rates in the Black community stood at 5% above the national average. Cancer-related deaths were around 40% higher for Black Americans than white Americans. And many of those deaths were from lung cancer. 
At the start of 1990, tobacco company R.J. Reynolds planned to roll out a Philadelphia-only marketing campaign for its new menthol brand. Its slogan? Uptown. The place, the taste. Early next month, R.J. Reynolds is going to test market a new menthol cigarette called Uptown. What's unusual about Uptown is that its advertising and marketing campaign is aimed at blacks and solely at blacks. Joining us now are Dr. Harold Freeman. Apparently, R.J. Reynolds was so confident in its strategy of selling its product in black neighborhoods, they started saying the quiet part out loud. R.J. Reynolds was kind of bragging on the fact that the black community had been neglected by the tobacco industry and had not been explicitly targeted with their own cigarette and that Uptown would be made for them. The strategy went well beyond billboards. R.J. Reynolds' plans for Uptown included sending out employees in vans to drive around to nightclubs, screen music videos, and, of course, hand out free Uptown cigarettes. You know, the old Inception strategy. Reverend Brown says the campaign felt like a direct insult to the cancer prevention work he was so invested in. With Uptown's official rollout still a month away, Reverend Brown got to work building a coalition. Their goal was to stop Uptown from ever reaching the market. I was part of a a Black ministerial group here in the city. So the Black clergy of Philadelphia and vicinity, they became part of that opposition. Word of Reverend Brown's plan to create a PR nightmare for Uptown spread quickly. Soon, around 30 Black and Latino community organizations agreed to join him. And by doing that, that also put a great deal of pressure on the local politicians in the city of Philadelphia to get on board or at least be quiet or neutral to the idea. News of this anti-Uptown campaign reached beyond Philadelphia, and Reverend Brown's organizing eventually caught the eye of the right person. Good morning. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you. I don't yet see you, but... Dr. Lewis Sullivan served as Health and Human Services Secretary in the George H.W. Bush administration. He was just the second Black HHS secretary and the first to get the role under a Republican president. Just as the anti-Uptown efforts were gaining steam, Dr. Sullivan was flying back from an overseas trip for the White House. During his flight, he opened up a copy of the International Herald Tribune. In that issue was a story about the community group in Philadelphia that had organized to protest the plans of R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company to introduce a new cigarette in Philadelphia called Uptown. The article quoted Reverend Brown, who said that R.J. Reynolds was, quote, taking their own brand of death and trying to market it to the Black community. Addressing tobacco's impact on Black Americans had been a priority of Dr. Sullivan's for several years. And it just so happened that Dr. Sullivan was already scheduled to travel to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia just a few days later. It was the perfect time to speak out. But to get the uptown criticism into his planned speech, he would have to go rogue and keep White House staff members in the dark. There were those who had worked for the tobacco industry beforehand and might very well try and influence the president to have me remove my 
criticism of the tobacco industry that was in my speech. Dr. Sullivan kept the new comments a secret, intentionally violating protocol. Then he told his staff not to share the copy with the White House until 8.30 a.m. on the morning of his remarks. By the time they were aware of my speech, I would have finished the speech and I'd be on my way back to Washington. Dr. Sullivan knew he could get fired for speaking out, but he was willing to face the consequences. If I have any credibility as a physician and as a public servant sworn to protect the health of Americans, this is something that I cannot be silent about. When Dr. Sullivan arrived at the University of Pennsylvania's School of Medicine, he took the stage and didn't hold back. At a time when our people desperately need the message of health promotion, Uptown's message is more disease, more suffering, more death. I must condemn this without equivocation. Dr. Sullivan's criticism of Uptown helped tip the scales in favor of Reverend Brown and his coalition. The Reverend was incredibly thankful for Sullivan's support. His forthrightness on this issue pushed it to a level that uh, we ourselves didn't have the power to do. Dr. Sullivan was never punished for speaking out, despite his remarks making national headlines. Privately, President Bush even supported his decision to criticize Uptown. He commented and said, Lou, we understand what you're doing and we're behind you. Maybe not as close behind you as you would like, but we'd be behind you. Turns out, Dr. Sullivan's comments would be the knockout punch for Uptown Menthols. In a memo to employees, an executive wrote that the backlash had made it, quote, impossible for us to read the test market. Just over a month after it was first announced, R.J. Reynolds officially canceled their marketing campaign. We have the hearts and minds and soul of our community. As long as people know that what you're doing is you're fighting for their interests and their health and their life, and you're fighting to reduce misery in their community, they will stand behind you. Since Uptown, government regulations have cracked down on many of the marketing tactics the industry used to make smoking look fun. In 2009, President Barack Obama signed a bill that gave the Food and Drug Administration the ability to regulate tobacco and banned the sale of flavored cigarettes. Today, thanks to the work of Democrats and Republicans, healthcare and consumer advocates, the decades-long effort to protect our children from the harmful effects of tobacco has emerged victorious. But there was one exception to that flavored cigarette ban. Menthols. They were allowed to stay on the market. Smoking rates have declined overall, about two-thirds since the Surgeon General's report. And only a slightly higher percentage of Black people smoke than white people. But thanks in part to decades of targeted marketing, roughly 85% of Black smokers use menthols, compared to just 30% of white smokers. And in the spring of 2022, the FDA announced a proposed rule that would ban menthols once and for all. A majority of congressional Black caucus members have come out in support, but Big Tobacco still has defenders in powerful positions. 
Leaders, including Reverend Al Sharpton, have argued that a ban would have its own drawbacks. If people can't buy their preferred menthols in stores, they might try to get them illegally, increasing the over-policing of Black people. It's hard to know all that a menthol ban would yield. If you ask advocates like Reverend Brown, they say what matters most is stopping the next generation of Black smokers from taking up cigarettes. And while a ban could be tremendously effective towards that goal, it seems unlikely that it would be fatal to the industry as a whole. We've seen how big tobacco has pivoted, even with major blows from the government. No regular cigarettes? We'll sell menthols. No menthols? We'll sell vapes. No vapes? I'm sure R&D is already thinking up what could be next. Just when it looks like the flame may have finally gone out, the tobacco industry is ready with another rebrand, another product, another image to aspire to, another cool slogan tempting you to act against your best interest. That's cool with a C, by the way. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Ethan Oberman. Next week, we're bringing you the story of the saloon-smashing queen of temperance, Carrie A. Nation. When she smashed up these bars, she says, you wouldn't give me the vote, so I had to use a rock. I would have used other options if I had them, but I don't. The rest of our team are producers Ramoy Phillip and Olivia Briley. Our associate producers are Laura Newcomb and Nick Del Rose. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Our executive editor is Andrea B. Scott. Editing by Katie Feather, fact-checking by Ian Michael, sound design and mixing by Haley Shaw and Emma Munger. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Tokoliana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to Dr. Valerie Yerger, Dr. Mark Mitchell, Dr. Robert Jackler, Lauren Silverman, Truth Initiative, and Professor Keith Waylu. You can learn more about how the tobacco industry targeted Black communities in his book, Pushing Cool, Big Tobacco, Racial Marketing, and the Untold Story of the Menthol Cigarette. And to Lydia Polgreen, Abby Ruzica, Dan Behar, Jen Hahn, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Ariel Joseph. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. And while you're there, hey, why don't you rate us five stars? You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. I was active in wearing a no-smoking button in the lapel of my coat to urge people not to use tobacco. 